How are we doing this morning? Good. All right. All right. This week is a uh, kind of an interesting week for me. I send all of my family away from me this week. Uh, the girls are going to camp this this uh, this afternoon, and then tomorrow I put Karen on a plane to Jordan for the next two weeks. And then Tuesday, I put my boys in the car to Grandma's until after Karen comes back. So uh, I'll have a lot of time to redo hardwood floors in our house. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, y'all might pray for me that I not burn down the kitchen. Uh, but in any case, uh, let's do pray and uh, ask the Lord to lead us through our, our study of His Word. God, our Heavenly Father... We do thank you for your manifold blessings to us, and especially, Father, for Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who reveals you in ways that we could not grasp before, and yet, Father, who possesses a fully human nature, who has experienced every bit of life, just as we have, yet without sin, that he might be our Redeemer and bring us into your presence uh, through the Holy Spirit's power and His sacrifice. And Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. We thank You that it reveals You clearly, that while we can never understand You fully, we can know You truly, and that You make it possible for us to do so. And Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you study anthropology or you study history, you will know very quickly that one of the things that you need to quickly identify in a culture or a people group or a nation is the things that they honor. Because whatever they honor uh, will become visible in that culture over time. Whatever is honored will show up in the values, in the morals, in the fabric of the culture as a whole. Let me give you some examples. How many of you have seen the movie The 300? Or a variation on that, right? 300 Spartans up against at least 100,000 Persians at the hot gates at Thermopylae. Uh, there in ancient Greece. They hold them off for three days, dead to the last man. But the Persians were so discouraged by the cost of what it would cost to take Greece that they turned around and went back home. Sparta was a culture that valued warfare, that honored warriors, that felt that all of the best of life was found in battle. They were not a gentle, quiet uh, easy to get along with group of people. Amen? Uh, they did not see war as something that was, while common and universal to humanity, something tragic and unfortunate. They saw it as something to be celebrated. And so Spartan men took Spartan boys at age five from their mothers and raised them in an exclusively male environment from that day until they turned 30 when they were able to get married. And they were taught to be warriors. And as they went out into, the, into battle, their mothers would famously say to them, come back with your shield or on it. In other words, come back victorious, 
or dead. And what you see is warfare honored in that culture. Or let me give you another example. This is one that's a little more culturally elevated. If you look at the city of Florence, Italy, today, today, you will see the impact of the 14th century, the 15th century, the 16th century scattered throughout the entire city. Because different than ancient Sparta, the Florentines value art and artists. And if you wanted to be an artist in, in a certain period of their history, in the, four, in the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, you went to Florence. And because there was a place where they honored men like Brunelleschi and Michelangelo and Botticelli and Fra Angelica and Da Vinci and these guys, right? And if you go to Florence today, it will literally take you weeks just to go to all the museums and go around the entire city seeing all of the art that is just scattered everywhere through the whole place. Because what that culture, what those people, what, the, what they honor shows up in their culture. Amen? Just like Sparta. Different values, but they both show up in what is honored. And they reveal a true principle that peoples and cultures become whatever they honor. And that principle holds for nations, for cultures, for groups, for churches, by the way. Churches will become whatever they honor. You want to be an evangelistic church, as we do? You've got to honor evangelism. Amen? You want to be a church that honors relationships? You've got to, you've got to hold them up as important and build structures into the, into the thing to ensure that relationships happen, right? We're a church that values the study of the Word of God. How does that show up? Sunday school, small group, 45-minute sermons from me, etc., right? Why, why, does that, why is that part of who we are? Because the study of the Word of God is something that we honor. Shows up in individuals, too. Whatever you hold in esteem will shape and mold you. You become whatever you honor, and therefore what you honor or who you honor is of enormous importance. Amen? Now, this week, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. You know, we're going through the book of Exodus. If you're new, uh, this is one of the things we often do. We go through a book, and we look at uh, whatever is next. Whatever we didn't cover last week, we try to cover some more this week, and then on to the next. Um, We are considering this week, as we look at the Ten Commandments, how to honor the Lord. And I believe that when we honor the Lord rightly, that it shapes us and molds us and has an effect on us, on what kind of people we become. And that is the goal, I think, of the Christian life, right? That we begin, over time, to be shaped by God's Word and God's Spirit, that we begin to look like Jesus. That as we honor the Lord rightly, we start to take on His his character, His values, His way of thinking about life and reality. Because... uh, how God looks at reality is the only right way of looking at it. All right? 
So let's look at the let's look at God's word together. Uh, if you got your Bible, Exodus chapter twenty, beginning in verse seven. This is a short verse. I'll read it to you. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who who takes his name in vain. Now, when a mom and a dad have a baby, what do they do? As soon as we find out. We're having, a, we're having a child. What do we do? We go to the store, we get the baby books, and we uh, read them together, and we go, no, no, not that name. I knew somebody like that. I don't know, no, not that name. We're not giving them that one. No, that would be stupid. It doesn't sound good with this one. You know, with my last name, that doesn't work. You know, whatever. Okay, you've got to um, come up with the right name. Maybe they call... If it's a boy, maybe they call it Stephen or Joseph or John or Nathan. Those are good names. Uh, or maybe they call her Karen or Catherine or Sarah or Ashley. Those are good names uh, if you're looking for one. Um, regardless, it's the parents who pick out the name, right? And the reason is, is that parents are given authority over their children by God. And one of the first ways they exercise that authority in a very practical way is they give that child a name. The kid doesn't come out and say, hey, call me Buford, right? They don't do that, okay? No. They, uh, mom and dad, give the child a name, and that indicates to the child, I gave you your name. God has put me in authority over you, just like Adam with the animals, so me with you. You are under my authority. But look at, in the Bible, if you look at God, what does God do? He says, you call me Yahweh. Why? He doesn't ask us, what would you like to call me? Okay? He doesn't ask us. Why? Because he is not under our authority. We are under his. And so he gives us his name. And he says, you call me You call me Yahweh. You call me the Lord, God Almighty. And it's to remind us who is God and who is not. And so he's going to give us some regulations about his name. And one of the reasons that he gives, he says, this is my name, is he wants to not only tell us who he is and who is in charge, but he also wants us to understand and see him as he really is. Because our God is a speaking God. He is a God who reveals himself, a God who longs to make himself known and to be in relationship with us. And so if you look at the whole book of Exodus, there's, you see this one phrase repeated. That you will know that I am the Lord. And so even in the plague narrative, what do you see? You see over and over, I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. Or in a couple of cases, I'm going to do this so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. And what do we see as we look at the book of Exodus? We see that being the Lord means he is not only the supreme God over all other competing Uh, claimants to being God. He's not only supreme, but he's also the saving God, the redeeming God, the speaking God, 
the holy God, the God who sacrifices a lamb to bring redemption, that they might be brought out of slavery and near to him. And so the, the name Yahweh is not just simply a title. It stands for the person of God and all he has done and all he has acted to achieve in the history of Israel. And so when he says, don't take my name in vain, another way you could render that would be, don't misuse my name. Why? Because my name stands for me, for who I am as God, as the God who redeems and saves and judges and rules. So don't misuse my name. That does not mean you can't use it. I used to have kind of hang-ups about that. When I was a kid, I would hear somebody say, um, back then, you know, we all had King James Bibles, okay? So we, we didn't say Yahweh, which is really the better translation. We said Jehovah, right? And people would say that, and I'd go, Ooh, I don't know. You don't know if you're violating the third commandment. I don't know if you should use that name, Right? It's not, an, it's not a prohibition against using God's name. It's a prohibition against misusing God's name. If God didn't want us to use his name, it's very unlikely he would use it himself 7,000 times in the Old Testament. He wants us to know who he is, and he has a name. And so what is forbidden is to misuse the name. What does it mean? to misuse, or to take God's name in vain? Well, first of all, it means to treat it lightly or carelessly or as if the God whose name it is doesn't really exist. It's to treat what is sacred and holy as if it were common and secular. And there are three real common ways that people have used and do use uh, God's name in a wrong way. There's a multitude of others, but, but one of the ways that people misused God's name, particularly in ancient times, but there are also some groups that do this now, uh, is in connection with the occult. Because the idea was um, adopting kind of this sympathetic magic idea that if you knew a, the name of a god, you could invoke it in an incantation and what that would enable you to do was to have power to manipulate that God into doing what you wanted. Now, obviously, the Lord would be opposed to that. He condemns to death anyone who participates in sorcery or the occult. But to use God's name is to treat him as if he is like one of the gods of the Egyptian magicians. God cannot be manipulated, and his, to use his name in connection with the occult is blasphemy. So obviously you can't use it that way. Sometimes uh, people, and I've seen this a lot, sometimes people misuse God's name in false prophecy. You ever seen this? 
in Israel, they were what they there were lots of there were lots of true prophets, but there were also a number of false prophets, and they all said, "Thus saith the Lord," because they want to have some authority to whatever they're going to blather on about. And they knew that only people who spoke in the name of God were taken seriously. And you will see this in modern forms today, where people will take what the Scripture says clearly and they will pervert it and say, God says. Or you will see forms of it like this, where someone will say, Well, God spoke to me and He said... What I tell people is, be very, very careful what you give God credit for. Okay? Be very, very careful what you give God credit for. Because the third commandment says, God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And if you speak intending to speak as a prophet in the name of God, you need to be very, very careful. Or even sometimes there will be people who say, well, God told me to tell you. Or I've even heard it used like this. Okay? Now, this is a flippant example, but it's real, and it's very serious sin. I have heard of girls who, because they don't want to date a certain guy, will say, well, I prayed about this, and God told me he doesn't want me to date you. Really? How did that message come? Skywriting? Uh, you know, Western Union Telegram? I mean, how did you get that one exactly? Right? Be very, very careful what you attach God's name to. Because God is real. And he is the judge of all the earth. And though he is a loving God, he does discipline his children. Amen? You need to be very, very careful what you attach God's name to. Or God gave me this song. That's always the big signal to buckle your seatbelt, isn't it? Like, oh, this is going to be rough water. God gave me this. <laughs> you know, because usually what follows is anything but excellent and praiseworthy. Be very, very careful that you not act as a false prophet attaching God's name to what he has not said and done. People do it in our culture for political parties. They do it for cheap trinkets at the ostensibly Christian bookstore in order to make money. Don't do that. Don't buy that garbage. Do not buy any Jesus junk. It is taking God's name lightly. It is a misuse of God's name. To make God into a bumper sticker. Or a bookmark. Or a t-shirt. Don't do it. Another one, another way that people often do this is in the making of vows and the taking of oaths. Okay? How many of you really believe that when somebody puts their hand on the Bible and they say, so help me God, that many of the people who do that 
actually believe what they're saying? Not many. Or how many of you stood before the Lord God Almighty and you said, in the name of God, I promise to love you, honor you, cherish you, be faithful to you, and keep you all the days of my life. If you do not intend to keep that vow, you better not make it. Because God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. It is a very, very serious thing to use the name of God in the making of a vow. Leviticus 19, verse 12, God says, Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill. And because this commandment addresses not just this particular sin, but the whole category of sins we can commit with our mouth, We're not off the hook simply because we don't do any of the things I've outlined. The third commandment applies to everything we say with our lips. Not just the name of the Lord. That's just the most extreme, most significant way that we might sin with our mouth. But a whole host of other things are subsumed under that category. And and by the way, as Christians, we literally bear the name of God on us, right? If you are a Christian, you bear the name Christ on you. You carry God's name as you go through life because you are identified with the name of God in your very day-to-day living. Amen? And so, do you honor God with your lips? Does what comes out of them in public and in private, bring honor and glory to God. Jesus said this, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James put it this way, The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Do you, do you use profanity? Does cursing come from your lips? Do you use your tongue to curse and to cut down or to build up and to encourage? Do you use your lips to bless or to mock? We who bear the name of Christ have to honor the Lord with our mouth. Amen? Amen. True story. All right. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Now, if you are a Bible scholar, you know this, that uniquely among the Ten Commandments, that this is the only one which is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament and made binding upon Christians. Nevertheless, God gave the Sabbath not as a burden, but as a blessing on his people. He gave it to be a good thing, something that we would enjoy and benefit from doing, not something that was meant to weigh us down with regulations and make us feel like, oh, I have to rest. Such a burden, so terrible. Okay, and therefore, I think that the Sabbath law has a lot to to teach us still in our hyper-stressed, hyper-worked, over-committed, under-worshipping culture. And so I want to look first at what God commanded, even though, as according to Romans 14, we don't have to keep the Sabbath in the way that Israel did. Um, I want to show you some things. First, look, notice what, what Israel is told here. He says, first, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And what God is saying there is this, that the Sabbath was not supposed to sneak up on them. They were supposed to plan for it, because after all, it was every week, every Saturday, the Sabbath was coming. So you could do your work Sunday through Friday, the first day through the, through, uh, through the last day, but Saturday was a day, it was the Sabbath day, it was a day for rest. They were to remember it and to keep it no matter what. So they weren't to get to Friday night and go, hmm... Let's see now. Tomorrow's Saturday. Do I have anything going on? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the Sabbath. Am I going to do that this week? Hmm, I don't know. And keeping it involved two sides of the same coin. First, they were to do all their work on the first day of the week. I mean, the first six days of the week. And that implies a couple things. That, number one, they were not to be lazy because they did not have all week to work. They needed to be caught up to such a degree that they could have the day and enjoy it as a time of rest and relax when the Sabbath came. I don't know how many of the rest of you are kind of neurotic like that, like I am, you know, where you you have to force yourself to kind of relax if you're sitting in the middle of a room where there's a lot of stuff undone, right? Like where you're like, ooh, the sink is full of dishes, Oh, somebody's got to do those. Children, <laughs> right? Uh, that's why we have a staff at our house. Four children, boy, it's great. We have lots of people to do stuff, right? Um, and also, it was, to teach, it was to teach them. He said, look, six days you have to do your work. And he told them, he said, that part of that implies that work is a good thing. Amen. When did God give Adam a job to do? Was it before the fall or after? It was before. And so, despite what you may think, work is not a curse. It is not part of the curse that you have to work. Now, the fact that it is toilsome and tiresome and sweaty and nasty sometimes is part of the curse. 
that you, have, that you have to work in order to earn your food is part of the curse. But work itself is meant to be a good thing. You know, I, I work in an office most of the time. Every now and then I, you know, break out for a discipleship meeting and go have coffee with somebody or something. But when you get to the end of the day, you can't necessarily see, if you're an, if you're an office guy like me, you can't necessarily see what was it I got done today, right? And so every now and then I like to go outside and do something with my hands. I like to chop firewood or I like to cut grass or pull weeds or do something outside so that I can look and I can see this is what I got accomplished, <laughs> right? Hey, look at that. We stacked firewood, you know, all the way up. So we're, we're ready for the winter now, right? And I like that because work can be a blessing and you see things accomplished. And when I lay in a hardwood floor this week, I'm going to look at that and go, ah, that room got done. That looks so cool. Time to move the furniture back in, right? That's going to be great. I'm going to get to see that. Work is a good thing. It's a blessing. But also, we need rest. And, and our work is something in which we honor the Lord also. We don't just honor the Lord when we worship. We honor the Lord with our work. And so he says, on six days, you need to work. And then I want you to notice something else. The Sabbath was for everyone and everything. Now, we don't have too many people that, you know, plow with horses or oxen nowadays. I mean, maybe if you're Amish, you know, you've got a horse collar and you've got your, you know, your moldboard plow and all that out there. And you're, you're cutting furrows. But, but in Israel's day, you did. You had work animals that pulled carts and pulled plows and, and, um, and that you rode at mounts and so forth. Uh, you were to give them rest. You were to give your servants rest. You were to give your children rest. You and your spouse were to rest. And it was, that rest was to be a blessing. It was to follow the pattern of God himself who is a working and resting God. And you learn some things about God, and you also had opportunity to relax. That's a good thing. And so one day every week you had worship and you had rest. And it was a way of remembering that the outcome of all your work was not dependent on you, but dependent on God. And, and it was a reminder of the fact that God had redeemed them from slavery. Because in Israel, I mean in Egypt, they were slaves. And what did they do? They worked every single day for 400 years. And here in the Sabbath, they had a reminder that they were not in slavery anymore, but they were free. They got to set their own calendar under God to work and then to rest. Now, again, as New Testament Christians, we are not bound by the Sabbath law. You do not have to keep this, but I think there are still some good applications here for us. Let me pick a real obvious one. The Sabbath was a day for worship, and it happened every week because all of God's people were expected to worship him every week. That is still a good idea. Still a good idea to worship God every week. 
Okay, I'll leave that alone. All right. We need to worship God. We need to pull back from the hustle and bustle of daily life, and we need to remember the one from whom life comes. And worship is our opportunity every week to pull back and to get ourselves reoriented. Because we kind of, you know, when, we, when we're at work, we kind of put our head down, and we just kind of get done what we got to get done, and then we hustle home to do whatever we got to do at home, and then we're getting kids around to wherever they need to go, and we're kinda, we kind of get subsumed under all of the stuff that we're doing. And when we come to worship, what we do is we pull back from all of that junk that weighs us down over the week, and we go, ah, I can lift my eyes up to the Lord and declare that he is great and he is worthy and give him praise and figure out and get reoriented as I look at God's word as to how I'm really supposed to think and act and live because I get buried under all the stuff of life. And so we need this pattern. Too many of us also play at our work and we work at our play. What I mean by that is, is that we waste a lot of time when we work, and we can't tear ourselves away from work when we're supposed to be resting. A lot of us, you know, play Angry Birds or whatever for 10 minutes at, at, at when we're at work, and then when we're supposed to be resting, you know, we're on vacation, we're still checking our email, see if anybody needs anything back at work, Right? We need some time. God, to, God commanded Israel to make a hard demarcation between work and play. And the two were not to interfere with each other. We work hard and then we rest. And we need margin. Most of us need margin in our life. And what we want to do is we want to, if, you know, if we're writing a paper, we want to fill up all the, all the white space on the whole sheet. We need margin. We need some work, and we play, and we, we can't make up for it by two weeks of vacation once a year. We need rest as well as work. Here are my personal convictions. I'll just give you what kind of what, what I'm doing. I don't believe God requires me to do no work on the Sabbath. I believe that that command passed with the death of Jesus in the beginning of the new covenant. That's my conviction. But I do think that that some form of rest that is regular can be a blessing to me even though I'm not required to and so Sundays are our day at our house for worship and for rest so we gather with God's people every week for worship and we fellowship and we pray in a small group and then we take naps Uh, Karen has a very special dish that she makes on Sunday at lunch and supper called get your oni Okay, and you might like to try that at your house, okay? It's wonderful, okay? It's good for her. It's good for our children to understand and recognize that mom is not working today, and you are fully capable of making a sandwich. There's the peanut butter, okay? (laughs) The knives are in the drawer, all right? You know how to figure this out, all right? And we've told our kids, you know, our boys are involved in football. Karen's on the JFL board. We've told them, look, as you get older, there's going to be football games on Sunday. Here's what you need to know. We're going to church, all of us. And if you are late to the game, then you'll be late. 
And if the coach won't let you play if you're late, then you won't play that year. Because they don't have games on Sunday in, in high school, and we will pick up then. We love football at our house. But some things are more important than football. And so we have convictions that we're trying to teach our kids that this matters. Football is fun. We like it. We love to go to the games. And we like to watch you hit people. It's fun. All right? But, otherwise, but if it interferes with church, we're going to be late or we're not going to play. It's as simple as it is. Those are, my, those are our convictions on it. Okay? Why? Because worship and rest need to be part of our life. And so we worship with you all every week that we can. And when we're not here, we try to find somebody else we can worship with. And when, then we rest. We don't do a whole lot on Sunday. We take naps almost every week, and it's great. Okay? We tell everybody, you have to go to your room. You don't have to sleep, but we're going to. So be quiet. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, and we rest, and it's glorious. Okay? It's a great way to spend a Sunday. Um, I'm going to pray, and then let's take communion. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal your character to us, that you reveal to us that you are holy, and the use of your name is a serious thing. But also, Father, you reveal to us that you are a loving God who created work as a good thing, but also who created rest, not because you need it, but because we do. And you want us to rest and enjoy and put our trust in you. Knowing that you keep the night watch. And you watch over the fields even when we don't. And you keep watch over our job even when we're not there. So Father, help us to be diligent when we work. And at peace when we rest. And Father, help us to remember you and honor you in all things that we might be shaped by your character and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.